0: Hey everybody, it's Adam. I just wanted to preface this episode and let everyone know that we had a bit of audio um, troubles with this one. Uh, Ben and I conducted the interview at first through Google Hangouts and it just kept quitting. So I ended up calling his phone from Skype And, of course, Skype is sometimes unreliable and dropped out some. So there's still some good content here. So just uh, suck it up and try to get through the audio. And uh, I think you'll get some value out of this episode. Thanks. Makers of Sport Podcast, Episode 64, with Ben Osborne. Welcome to episode 64 of the Makers of Sport podcast. I'm your host, Adam Martin, at T Adam Martin on Twitter. Many of you that listen to this podcast know that I am uh, from Kentucky, and basketball just tends to run through our blood in this state. I'm a Big Blue Nation fan, of course, a huge college and high school basketball consumer, a recovering and some and still sometimes slipping up sneakerhead. Having two kids obviously put a damper on that that world. Uh, but basketball is just something that culturally I really love. From the streetball courses of New York City to the farms of Indiana to the mountains of Kentucky and North Carolina, basketball is just a sport that is very diverse c- culturally and it, it means a lot to a lot of people. And it, it actually doesn't take a lot to get a game going, which I think is why I love it so much. I'm able to stay in touch with a lot of people. For this reason, I am extremely excited to welcome today's guest. As editor-in-chief of Slam Magazine, a long-standing basketball publication that lives at the intersection of hip-hop, hoops, and fashion, Ben Osborne has been with the publication for nine years in some shape or form. He has been involved in the making of the film The Legend of Sweepy, Uh, a documentary about NYC streetball legend Lloyd Daniels, as well as the book, The Brooklyn Cyclones, Hardball Dreams, and the New Coney Island, which featured a team whose logo was actually designed by great friend and episode four guest, Todd Radom. Welcome to the show, Ben. I appreciate you taking the time to come aboard. Adam, I'm happy to be here.
1: And uh, it's probably hard to believe, but I'm actually in my 19th year at SLAM. Oh, my. Okay. Yes, I started as an intern in 1997. Oh, wow. Uh, I started as editor-in-chief in in 2007. So I'm actually just in my 10th year as EIC. And yes, um, 19th, it's crazy. Yeah, I started (laughs) literally in August of 97 as as an intern here at SLAM. So long, long history.
0: It's kind of funny because, you know, just being a SLAM subscriber, I mean, I... I can't remember if I told you or not before the interview, but I've been a subscriber since issue number three, and Shaq was on the cover. Uh, I got it for a Christmas present at some gift exchange, and after reading through it, I was just hooked. And your name is just your name is, has always been familiar. And so when I was looking at your LinkedIn profile and I saw nine years, I was like, that seems weird. I, I could have sworn he's been there for longer than that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's probably the that's probably the editor in chief thing. But I think I later on it says you know, used to be here, freelancer or or whatever, you know, I had a lot of different uh, titles before I became the editor, but yeah, I've been here a long time and it's awesome that you have that history. My, my, I was in college, I was a freshman 93 94 at George Washington and one of my best friends bought issue one um, in like January of 94. And we were like, this thing's amazing. He decorated his room with with Slam. Um, and then I would, you know, I wouldn't say I was hooked, 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 but it was at least in my head. And then uh, issue 10 with Scottie Pippen, who I just absolutely loved Scottie Pippen. And I bought that. And then, you know, from then on, I was hooked. That was like the first one I spent my own money on. And then I was up here working by issue 20. So it was a nice, fast, uh, fast progression from exposure to purchase to uh, to employment. Man,
0: man, that's so crazy. So were you a pippin guy over Mike?
1: Well, I was my number one player in any sport is Mark Jackson. Uh-huh. Uh, but then I hence also. The email.
2: Loved,
1: <laughs> yes, exactly. Hence the email. I have multiple email addresses referencing him and passwords referencing him and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I also loved Michael, the shoes, the dunks, all that. And both of my parents were from Chicago. So my dad was a pretty big Bulls fan. So I, I kind of loved Michael and Scotty equally, but Scotty was sort of more, you know, seeing Michael on the cover of a magazine was not a shock. And I did have tons of, you know, slams uh sport magazine SI I mean I had tons of Jordan covers, but Pippin was just kind of extra special. And like the year that Jordan was out, um which was that yeah, 94, 93, 94 actually, that same that same year, you know, Scotty was that was one of the neatest seasons anyone's ever had. I mean, all-star MVP and carried him so you know, it's hard. I wouldn't say I liked one more than the other, but Scotty's success was sort of more fun to enjoy than than Michael's, just because it was less celebrated.
0: Oh, okay, yeah, I was gonna say I, for some reason I was always a pippin' guy. I don't know why. It's just he was the one that I sort of chose, and I think maybe because uh, growing up, I mean, I played like a three, so it 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 just sort of made sense, right? Like that was kind of the guy that I flocked to. Um, Yeah, but always like Jordan sneakers. That's that's where. Although Scotty did have some really cool stuff too. So yes, Scotty (laughs) has
1: Scotty has a place in in sneaker lore. Also, you know he he's you know he's a notch behind Michael on and off the court but he has his own legacy that really is is great too so you can't take anything away from
0: him yeah no doubt well listen we we kind of gave just a little bit of an introduction and you sort of gave a little bit of your history but how about uh can you give us a little bit more in depth you know from college to um what did you do before you got to slam that type of thing
1: yeah i mean i i, I was a big um you know, high school athlete, but I'm not physically blessed. And the one thing I really liked besides playing sports was reading them and watching them. And, you know, I think I decided by mid high school that I was going to be a sports journalist. And uh, I went to George Washington University. I majored in journalism. I walked into the school paper the very first day I was on campus and I worked there every day. For four years, um, I, I was uh, I was sports editor of the of the school paper at George Washington, the GW Hatchet. And my senior year, I got a job as a news aide at the Washington Post in the sports department, which was a paid position, um, mostly with people out of college. So it was a blessing to get that exposure. And I worked there Friday nights and some Saturday nights uh, in the sports department. Um, you know, taking calls from Tony Kornheiser and Michael Wilbon and readers and high school scores. And, I uh, it was amazing and it just solidified that that's what I wanted to do. And I was, I grew up in suburban New York and I didn't, I could have stayed in Washington and worked at the post, but I, for a bunch of reasons, wanted to move home. And so I just applied, you know, New York was the media capital. I applied to newspapers, magazines. Of, of all stripes, really. Um, and then I did a little cross-country trip right after college. And when I came back, like early August of 97, I just started following up with all the people I'd written to. And, um, I mean, I think ESPN was starting a magazine. I had a little back and forth with them. There was this uh, new magazine called Maxim. I had a little back and forth with them. Um But then Slam was like, oh, we have a summer intern and he just quit. Uh, You know, he was supposed to be here another month. Um, We have a lot of transcribing that needs to be done. Can you come in the next three days? This was like on a Tuesday. They were like, can you come in the next three days and just transcribe our editor-in-chief interviewing players? We'll give you $5 an hour and we'll go from there. And uh, I've kind of been down with Slam ever since. (laughs) That's awesome. um, You know, I, I... I got I maybe did about a year and a half full time with Slam off of that first thing, but um, I had other interests and I didn't see the editor in chief job opening up anytime soon. So I mean, I did I wrote for Double XL magazine, which had the same owner, which is hip hop. I used I used my Washington Post connections. I did a lot of writing for them called stringing, you know, like covering games that they didn't want to travel someone up to new york i did stuff for the new york times you know just a lot of freelance writing and i did a ton for slam but it wasn't always on staff you know but i would go to the meetings and they you know i'd get paid to write articles i spent some time with in puerto rico with my then girlfriend um i wrote the book about the cyclones but again every month i was at least coming in the office of slam once or twice a month and i was writing something in every issue but a lot of you know like ninety nine to two thousand five uh two thousand and six was a i was way more of a writer and less of an office um person but then Ryan Jones was the editor and he left somewhat abruptly. And Dennis Page, the founder and publisher, you know, he'd known me for a long time. Even though I hadn't been in the office every day for a little while, he saw enough of me. He saw my work. We talked. Um, I'd helped a little on Double XL. I'd helped a little on King, which was another magazine he'd started. And he offered me the job, and and I took it. And I started at the beginning of 2007. And uh, since then, you know, my my responsibilities have changed a lot, um, but it's still you know, centered around basketball and sneakers and writing, you know, there's just a lot of different mediums now and different responsibilities than just getting an assignment and writing about a player or an event. Um, but yeah, same, same interests and, and, you know, somewhat same audience.
0: Yeah. Well, for those that maybe aren't basketball fans and we've kind of talked uh, nerding out on Slam a little bit here, but, but I do have listeners that aren't basketball fans and they're kind of more into other sports. I've got some international listeners and that type of thing. Why don't you just kind of give us a rundown on Slam Magazine? Like, who is Slam? Maybe like how it was founded? What is, what is the brand? You know, what is the why? Why is Slam Magazine who they are?
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's branded the in-your-face basketball magazine, and it's something that, you know, maybe overseas listeners could appreciate with, I think, soccer, football, you know, that that's the only sport with a similar potential. And there are lots of magazines done overseas that kind of intersect sports and culture surrounding soccer. But it's really like, that. it's because basketball has a culture that, extends off the court i mean the publisher dennis page he had done guitar world um which is still around he, he's not involved anymore but you know a pretty cool rock magazine a little more narrow focused than rolling stone and and he he started that but he loved hoops he loved high school hoops he loved sneakers and he and also he was a fan of like he saw Vibe start he saw the source start he saw these magazines you know presenting Uh, rappers or rock stars in a certain way and he was like basketball players are the new rock star they're the new rapper you know why can't I make a magazine the same way so it was kind of like why don't I do a music magazine the best way to put it is like a music magazine about a sport um, with a lot of uh, product coverage sprinkled in and the Nikes and Adidases. I mean, I think it took him a little while by the time I arrived, he was in p- great position with all of them, but he had to sell it. You know, he had to explain to people, look, this is a, this is a culture.
0: People will support this. The magazine, you know, it was, it was founded somewhere around, uh, what, like 1994. Um,
2: yeah, nine, 93. I mean, the first cover date was 94. Um, But it, I mean, it was definitely conceived in the summer of 93 and probably hit stands, I think, around November, December,
0: 1993. Okay. Well, you know, the thing that I find interesting about it is that the the, the language and the tone of the writing, excuse me, was something that I'd never seen before. And I mean, obviously, this is sort of pre-internet era. Um, I mean, I was... uh, i was just amazed at the slang and then like it sort of just really had sort of that hip hop voice it it spoke in a language that was really what we as kids that played basketball would hear on, on the courts that we frequented or uh the music that we were listening to and and i know that uh some of this was kind of before your time but i'm just curious how does how does a magazine um because it's it's long standing, right? And how there had to be some credibility things in the beginning in sort of this quote unquote highbrow world of publishing, right? Like how does it kind of gain that credibility? Because you really built a niche niche audience from the beginning.
2: Yeah, it 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 took a lot and you know, in many ways we're still fighting for credibility because we chose to be authentic and and kinda natural. I mean, I think that the very first Editor, who's now a big financial guy, um, his name was Corey Johnson, and his assistant editor was Andy Se- Sewer Sewer, who's at Fortune, I believe. Um, I mean, they were just kind of having fun, and you know, maybe trying to go with the. Music and the slang, and you know, probably encouraged by the publisher Dennis Page, who again was trying to make like a music magazine. But for issue three, he brought in Tony Gervino uh, as editor in chief, and around that same time, linked up with Scoop Jackson, who was like a young writer in Chicago um, who hadn't had a lot of exposure but was clearly very talented and those two really, um, and then shortly after Russ Bankston, who was a gra- who had just graduated from the university of Delaware of journalism. Um, and they all had, I think traditional journalism, uh, learnings, but they all had great personality. They were all music fans. Um, you know, and scoop really his style, which you can still see on ESPN to this day as he's become way bigger than slam. Um, he was just kind of a you know he was from chicago he was you know he knew people you know on the streets he played he was familiar with the game he was familiar with the music and so he had a very very unique style that just would never have flown anywhere else but flam's goal wasn't to get you know respect in the publishing world it was to appeal to kids and to appeal to sneaker companies and his style people just loved. And if you go back through old issues, you know, I know how I write. Like, I throw in slang when it's appropriate, and I try to talk the way I speak normally. But most of the, like, crazy writing and and stuff, if you actually read the stories, was mostly Scoop. I mean, he had some imitators that were good, some that were bad, but we were also using tons of established writers that wrote pretty dry. I mean, Dan Wetzel, who's huge at Yahoo Sports, he did tons of high school stuff for Slam back in the day. Anthony McCarron, longtime writer at the New York Daily News, tons of stuff for Slam back in the day. We had a Mitch Album story. Um, Peter Vesey wrote wrote for us. Bob Ryan wrote a story for us. You know, we had... Michael Bradley has been with us forever. I mean, he's a journalism professor. So the writing itself... I don't think was super like hip y but Scoop wrote a lot of cover stories. Plus, Russ and Tony were writing all the headlines and the decks we call them, you know, the subheadlines. And these guys were music aficionados, so the headlines were always like, and so on top of pop culture. So, unlike the SIs, you know, with very basic headlines those headlines were often hip-hop songs or even, I mean, they loved metal, too, like, you know, lots of metal songs or movie titles, but just very hip. So you were drawn in and maybe the captions. So, you know, we didn't have that many writers, I don't think, with, like, super unique style, but the the, the, like, framework that you read within was super influenced by music. And it wasn't a forced thing, but it was just, like, have fun, reference things you like and, um, you know, run with it. And it was also very aggressively designed. I think that was a big part of it. There was huge pictures, there was type all over the place and you just kind of read aloud. And a lot of people say what you say. And I think it's true to a degree that the articles were in a different style, but it was more like the way you were brought into it. When you really read a profile of a player unless Scoop wrote it, it wasn't probably that, that, that unconventional. And especially now with the internet when people try different styles, but everything but the article was very original in terms of the references, the presentation, um, and there were, yeah, just slang and, and music titles and lyrics used in ways that had probably never been done in a print magazine. Yeah, no
0: doubt. And, what, and I think what's interesting from, just from my lens at that time is that I got my first issue when I was in sixth grade <laughs> I mean you know I, I wasn't I, I had never read anything that was uh, you know even just in headlines or anything that, that wasn't you know we were trying to be taught to like write in this particular way and then here's this thing where it's like this is the way that I really would like to write you know if that's <laughs> yeah. I mean and, and this is who I am you know
2: and to this day you know we like curses and um not not gratuitously, but if it's in a quote, and um you know there was just always an edge for young you know I don't think it's horrible if it feels like a teeny bit dangerous, you know what I'm saying, yeah. like the kid's kind of getting away with something, and I think that you know that made it that made it cool it just it just cool had doing. it
0: just had a swag to it, you know like that's really yeah. the only way to describe it i mean i just there, yeah. there wasn't anything I was reading at the time that that had that type of swag and and it's interesting because like I'm sort of uh, I interviewed the creative director of the NBA during that time and um, I mean recently but obviously he worked there during that time <laughs> um, but he um, I was sort of a ch- one of the children that he they were trying to reach I mean I was sixth grade um, you know we're talking 93 94 they, that was like a, a really interesting era for the NBA. There was a lot of growth. There was a lot of rebranding. There was a lot of alternative jerseys, alternative logos. Like it was this whole, they really had kind of like embraced that, that hip hop and fashion culture to an extent at the time. So how much did that influence? I mean, you guys, it's almost like you guys really helped each other. Like if you think about Nike and then their ad agency, Widen and Kennedy, it's always like they both, they each were each other's first, client slash agency, and then they both kind of grew together to now they're just like these major powerhouses.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the NBA was changing absolutely. I mean, you had guys going to college uh, less or not at all. Um, you had new fashion tastes, um, new boldness, new hip-hop. Um, I mean, the NBA did do a lot of creative things with uniforms. I think you make a good point on a larger scale. I mean, I think they were very ambivalent about what was happening. And if anything, part of why we succeeded was because we were presenting the players more realistically than the NBA. And that schism is like not as wide now, which might, you know, probably hurts us in, in some way. But if you think back, you know, the player we're probably most linked with is Allen Iverson who's done countless amazing covers with us. And, you know, this is a guy who in the official NBA publication, Hoop had his cornrows or in an NBA ad had his cornrows turned into a flat top. And in the Hoop magazine had his tattoos airbrushed off. Meanwhile, he's on the cover of Slam with his hair blowing out and you know flexing his tattoos. And I think really, I mean, the, the NBA when we did the, the Stephon Marbury Kevin Garnett cover with chains on, like they were furious. So, oh, really? They yes, they were down for some you know uniform adventure, but they were not into the like hip hop revolution, the bold. Player. Um, So Slam really had a lane because, you know, Hoop used to be kind of a much bigger thing, but they, and then Inside Stuff, they made that a print magazine, but I think fans, young fans, could see right through it. And we weren't even. You know, just like I don't think any writing was forced. Whether you found a super straight-laced story, a very veteran newspaper style story, uh, a off-the-wall scoop story, or just a bad story, because sometimes we've had writers of less skill. Like it was, there was not a lot of, there wasn't a lot of forced messaging or just write the way you want. Same thing with our photo shoots. We weren't telling dudes like look tough or, or bring jewelry or don't look tough and don't bring jewelry. We just said be yourself as opposed to a lot of NBA media photos or whatever are pretty canned and, and, and forced. And so we just told guys be more natural and pose the way you want to pose. And we got absolutely
0: epic cover shoots over the years because of that. Um, Yeah, and Iverson, that was was around the time they started enforcing a dress code before games, right? I mean,
2: Totally, yeah. totally. I mean, the dress code was largely a reaction to the way Allen Iverson dressed, and how he influenced people. And that swung so far that now guys like really embrace it, and the fashion in the NBA is, you know, pretty high. Yeah. and guys dress amazing. I mean, I'll, I'll credit them for that. Um, Westbrook,
0: you know that that LeBron, LeBron. <laughs>
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, LeBron and Dwayne Wade and gla- you know, fake glasses and all, you know, all all types of stuff. Um, things have come a long, a long, long way. But I think that in those early days, uh, Slam was one of the few places where athletes were kind of presented in their true self, and we were talking the way that we talked, or the writers were talking the way that they talked, and that was pretty revolutionary at the time and I think that young people related to it, uh, sneaker companies and or their ad agencies, I mean Wyden has been a huge supporter of Slam forever um, on behalf of Nike right. you know, they saw what we were doing and the league has been very kind of like, look they credential us to games and they let us buy photos, not for cheap, but we do have an NBA Photos Getty Image subscription that we pay handsomely for, and they do credential us to games. But they don't really... You know, it's not like they're buying ads with us. They're kind of like, we're going to let you exist, and that's how we're going to support you. But I don't think we've ever been a, a favorite in the, in the league offices necessarily. <laughs> yes. And, you know, lots of other you know, journalists hated slam over the years. I mean, for, you know, they didn't like how we dressed, you know, we were going to games and jerseys and stuff like that. And, you know, one big advantage we had over a newspaper guy or a beat guy, like we're writing positive stuff. So a guys are happy to talk to us. B if you're in the locker room after a loss, like we never have to have like those tough conversations and I respect for, you know, newspaper guys or beat reporters like that that's hard to go talk to a guy after a loss or ask, why do you make that pass? You know, Slam never had to do that. We'd keep it positive, and if it wasn't positive, we could just do it the next day. Um, So that created a, a sense where, you know, Guys, players would be like loath to talk to eight, ten, you know, eighty percent of the reporters in the locker room, and then they see, "Oh, that's the slam guy. Come on over," and it's like all happy and good. Uh, yeah. And that created that created resentment too. So, well, um, it's interesting
0: because I think that you guys, I mean, your magazine, just having this conversation, I, I look at it and it sort of makes me reflect on how much it actually turned me into like my mentality today i'm very um i don't want to say anti-establishment that's too much but just kind of like don't put me in a box right like i'm all about don't put me in a box um don't ask for permission just go do things and that's really kind of what you guys have done like you 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 had this internet culture mentality long before the internet was like a viable thing that everybody was on right like you're you're being true to yourself, being transparent. And even, even if you look at um, just some of the mainstays in the magazine, like trash talk and noise, which for listeners, it's just like these little short bits of information that kind of span the, the bottom of the first 10 pages or so. I mean, that's almost like Twitter before Twitter.
2: I mean, people have said that to uh, us a lot. It, it's noise is very, very much like Twitter. It's like little one-liners. Um and I think you're you're exactly you're exactly right we were also you know debuting shoes you know the kick section which still runs to this day um, and is back in the back we had it up front through like an Adidas partnership for about a year but our kick section is back in the back of the magazine and it's still beautiful but now it's just pictures of shoes you've already seen but to stick with the internet uh, you know comparison like that used to be where people saw the next round of Nike or Adidas. Issues for the first time. I mean, a lot of kids used to read Slam backwards, like they'd open it and go right there. And now, what is the internet built on? Like you know, one-liners and sneaker photos. Yeah, no, it's it's um, crazy.
0: You guys really sort of spearheaded sneaker culture, in my opinion. I mean, now we have
2: magazine.
0: Yeah, I mean, Kicks magazine. You took the Kicks on the court section and spun that out into its own magazine. And if you look at, and also you've done obviously other specialty issues like an MJ. Issue, greatest dunks issue, but you know now if you look around and and it's this sneaker culture. I mean, I watched a documentary the other day on Vimeo that was about like sneakerheads, and if you just look at like Nice Kicks and Complex and Soul Collector and Kicks on Fire and all these different websites that have really carved out a niche in sneaker culture over the years. uh, You know, I guarantee you, if you talk to most of these people, they sort of their inspiration came from Slam. I mean, it had to. You guys were like the only people doing this back then. It seemed like.
2: Yeah, which is amazing and a legacy that we're all proud of, um, and in not a whiny way, not in a shamed way, but just like a, you know, kind of sigh, like, you know, it's, it's too bad that we were so dedicated to this, you know, wonderful print product that is still a business, but, you know, ironically, there's places that do that stuff better than we do, even if they're using our template and that's just like the facts and now we're catching up like we were the leaders and we still are but in a world that is much smaller the print world is much smaller and then online there's just so much competition so it's like i love talking to you and anyone that wants the history and people that still buy it because they know that but it's balanced with the knowledge that like you know we're trying to reach kids that are so you know that were two or not even born or negative five when slam was founded <laughs> so we don't know you know now we have to get them we have to do it their way too um and we haven't always done you know I'm the first person to admit we haven't always done the best job of that and I, I don't know you know who else you've spoken to but I think anyone at a legacy you know print first publication has had that struggle to transition you know it, absolutely the you know the way athletes are shot I think we, we really changed you know ourselves I mean ESPN you know started taking our photo editor lots of our photographers um, you know our design was copied and uh, with kick, same thing. Yeah, we started a magazine. Now there's tons of websites. Like, you know, if we were really, really forward-thinking, we would have had the first great sneaker website, and we,
0: we certainly did not. So, um, well, but I think you have to kind of keep in... It's, it's kind of interesting because you have to keep in perspective, too, that, like, Slam, to me, I see Slam as a magazine that covers basketball and the culture of basketball, which includes sneakers. And some of these sites... Just cover sneakers. I mean, they've they've niched down within a niche, and that's just that's the internet. Yeah. You know, I mean, communities. Look at this community. I'm about sports design. You know, I mean, I don't yeah. even talk about sports. We don't talk about what happens on the field. We talk about what happens around the field and the culture of it, and the branding and the creativity.
2: Yes, no, you're you're right. Slam was created in a different in a in a different time where basketball itself was a niche. And now you're right. It's, it's much nichier. And we do try to take that long view and we don't want to cover shoes just for the sake of them being shoes. We want them in the context of basketball shoes. So,
0: yeah, well, let me, uh, um, I, uh, I think I may have mentioned, I don't know if I did or not, but I actually, I wrote a letter to trash talk once. And, uh, (laughs) it's kind of funny because it's not about basketball at all. And I had just, I was 23 I was like fresh out of design school um I was I had just got that job at that that sports marketing company that we were talking about um I can't remember if we were recording when we were talking about that or not but uh <laughs> It's it's really embarrassing to look at the letter now, but I'd like to read it if you don't care, because <laughs> I have it right here in front yeah, of me. Yeah, you,
2: you you mentioned it, but I did not go uh, find it, so I'm I'm really excited to
0: hear what what you had to say, and I wonder if I responded. to So, it. well, I did get a response, and so it's it's just okay. uh, just a preface. I was super, I was really hard on you guys, but I was really trying to take in. I was really kind of trying to like jump into the whole trash talk mentality. Like, it's a lot of letters at the time, like, people just, that was what it was, you know, it was trash talk. So I'm going to read it real real quick. Oh
2: my God. Okay, yeah, go for it.
0: (laughs) Hey, Slam, I've been a long time reader of the magazine. I remember getting it in sixth grade, issue number three, for the first time and instantly falling in love. Hip hop and, got to flip the page, hip hop and basketball mixed was such a great idea. All through middle school and high school, I carried my latest issue of Slam with me to class and road games, getting pumped about playing ball. This magazine made me love the game of basketball more and more each issue. Now I'm 23, and I have every issue except for number one and number two. I still love the magazine. (laughs) Here's where I get a little tough, so just a preference. (laughs) I still love the magazine, but I'm disappointed in some things. I always viewed Slam as the best basketball magazine ever. It was so cool, from the content to trash talk to photographs. Slam of the month. Oh, and then I said, oh, Slam of the month was the shiz. Bring back multi-shot photography. <laughs> However, after okay. after going to school I and getting a degree in graphic design, I began to look closer at the design. The features were cool, and I loved the creativity in the whole magazine. Now I work for a publishing company. Um and design game programs for NCAA, SEC, et cetera. One thing I must say that some of your cutouts, for example, and I, <laughs> this is where it gets really bad. Like I mentioned like two pages and uh, I basically talk about how there were some uh, areas where like there were some players that like, you know, when a player's hands connected to it, like if a player's holding his elbow out in kind of like triple threat position and there's like the circle, there's like the area between the arm. Yeah it was like that wasn't cut out or something apparently in like one of these issues. And I was sort of just ripping on that. I'm just going to paraphrase because this actually gets a little long. Um, So I'm basically like ripping you guys on that. And I said, let's see, even if I wasn't inside on the design world, I would recognize that something was wrong with that photo. Another one is Antoine Walker on page 42, uh, line of the month. And I said, (laughs) I'm telling you, man, it's pretty rough. (laughs) Like I'll have to just type this up and send it to you if you can find it. I'm sure if I really want to get picky, I could find others because lately I have noticed some bad ones. I don't know who on your staff is doing these, but they need some serious training. I mean, how do you get something? How does something that bad fly? I'm trying to read. I must be getting old, man. I'm 32. I'm trying to read. It's like these letters are small. (laughs) I'm like, kind of in the dark. Um, hint, don't let interns do big-time projects. Projects They screw things up. Come on, Slam, you can do better than that. If you claim to be the best b-ball mag, you got it. do everything the best, photography, design, content, et cetera. Anyway, how about an article about my boy Chris Lofton at UT? That kid is sick. I played ball against him in high school. And you guys responded um, and said you mean you don't read us just for the articles <laughs> like that that was just that was the response i mean it was a perfect response right like it's kind of like that, taking that whole playboy thing or whatever but uh yeah. i had to read that man because i found this that's, i was looking for it, and I found it. And,
2: you know that's another thing that you know for people that don't know it i think that you know the noise is pretty unique but the, the trash truck is, is pretty amazing and i i gotta say like there's there's been a renaissance of late. I mean, for one thing, there's always been, I mean, any magazine gets a lot of letters from prison because that's still their only way to communicate, but we get an inordinate amount. Um, but then we also still get kids, you know, they send us handwritten stuff and then you've got emails and then occasionally now we'll dip into Facebook if we need something like just that's more, you know, the newest color. But, Um, If I didn't need them to be, like, I like to have a few each issue that are specific to the new issue, Um, you know, and those rarely come in time by by mail, so that's when I got to dip into the email or the social media and ignore some of the, but we get still plenty, and, you know, people make friends, they insult each other, they argue, Um, I don't think I'm quite as witty as, I mean, whoever the, the ed is has only always been one person. It's that editor-in-chief. So that was definitely my answer. And then the ones before that were whoever was editor-in-chief. Um, I'm not sure I'm as witty as those guys, but we try. Looks you like know, Ryan yeah, Jones not.
0: is the editor on this issue.
2: Oh, I thought you were... What? Is, which one was it? I thought it was... Um,
0: this is uh, 2006, volume 13, number nine. It's issue... Um, 2006. It's issue... Okay. Uh, yeah, this is a, this is like ten years. I mean, this is this is a long time. I just graduated this is college. Chris
2: Paul? Yeah, it's Chris oh,
0: Paul, man. New Orleans Hornets on the cover. It's issue one hundred and two, two thousand six, two thousand oh, okay. seven NCAA preview. Right. Yeah,
2: so that was Ryan. So he was yeah, his last issue was one hundred and five. Oh okay. Um, so that was Ryan, not me. And example, he's wittier than I am. Um, <laughs>
0: well, dude, but- I'll tell you how nerdy I was about this magazine, man. I mean, I had uh, I had a senior project. In design school, where we had to redesign a magazine, we had to do a new cover, masthead table of contents, and two features. Uh, but first, we actually had to dissect a magazine that we wanted to redesign and so I, I, of course, I used slam, and uh, I, you know I had to d- identify what typeface you were using for like your body copy um, I had to sort of identify a grid like a grid that you guys were using and then i went and took my own photos and um and just redesigned it and and uh it's kind of crazy because (laughs) i look at that stuff now and it's like really bad like i don't know what i was thinking because obviously i was like in in school but just it just tells to show you man i mean like there's i've been i've been a nerd from back in the day i mean i even know that your your typeface is franklin gothic you know i remember like having to look and see like uh the uh identify spending hours trying to identify like the lowercase g. Like that's how you know nerdy some of these this design stuff can get. Yeah,
2: I, I hear you. And then we there we did like a we did a f right with my first one, which was 106, we did like a front to back redesign. And then Melissa, who was the creative director for a long time, she did another one maybe like three or four years ago, and she left like two and a half issues ago, and we have a new guy uh, who really just had to kind of pick up what she had, but he's doing uh, our next issue, which we close next week, and which will be out for All-Star, has a total front-to-back redesign again with all new all new fonts, body copy, and I think it's pretty neat. Um me and the publisher, the ad publisher, Dennis Page, like, our dream was to put it on better paper and perhaps reduce frequency, which I think is a, um, you know, model that makes sense for print, Mm -hmm. and that's not happening yet, so it's still on our relatively mediocre paper um, and same trim size, but uh, the look is still going to be different, and I'm I'm excited about that, and, you know, for the design nerds like you and a few other people. I mean, I think, it'll be pretty noticeable even the even the amateur readers and uh i think it's cool and you got to stay you know your design's got to stay relevant and we probably ha- did have some bad silhouette jobs that you are complaining about i don't know
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, well apparently i point them out so
2: we- <laughs> it, it, it could have been it could have been a mistake or it could have been you know we've also had some people just trying to do crazy stuff with layout so so we make you know we make mistakes still to to this day it's a a very
0: small task yeah it's just it's funny because I I sort of uh, I kind of feel bad about it (laughs) I I think trash talk is definitely special so yeah yeah well kind of uh, staying in the same vein as far as like you know you, you put together you help put together like the idea and the concepts for the magazine. Um there's a because there are a lot of designers that listen to the show and maybe a lot of them work in-house at sports teams or maybe they do branding or maybe they just work in the digital realm at agencies and that type of thing. As editor in chief, what is your role at the magazine? Can you kind of put that in in uh, everyday terms for us? Like what does a typical day look like um in this type of position?
2: Yeah, I mean it's very much editorial. And I think that to this day, even as long as I've been affiliated with a magazine and a website, my opinions are amateurish when it comes to design. And I I like to really leave that up to the creative director. We had one for the first, you know, eight, nine years of my tenure, uh, Melissa Brennan, Melissa Medvedich, who was awesome and is now at a website called Stylecaster. And now we have a guy named Paul Jure, who I used to work with at King and Double XL. Um and the font selections are up to them, some of the photo selections. Uh so, you know, I don't know what the relationship is like for the designers you work with, but they don't have to do they don't have to worry too much about me, my job is the words, you know, the, the content, really. And that's online, too. Like, you know, I map out every issue. I have lists for the next 10 issues of potential lineups. And then as we get closer and closer, we whittle it down and down and down. And then a week before we strip to the printer, we've had our final lineup. And there's just copy coming and going. Um, the online editor is certainly empowered to assign and run stories without me knowing Going, but um, I'm aware of pretty much everything that goes up, and a lot of stuff that goes up is at my wish or, you know, saying please run the story because I talk to a lot of writers as well. Um, so, really, my responsibility in the true sense is just. All the words that we put out on print, on the site, on social, you know, whether I'm writing it or the people working for me, you know, it's got to be okayed. It's got to be cool with me. Um, And then second responsibility these days is, is very business related, just in on ad meetings, traveling, um, helping with decks, again, not the look of them, but just uh, the content of them, pitching ideas for print campaigns, digital campaigns, video campaigns. Um, so it's really like an editor-publisher role and design while I like know its importance and that we would be nothing without um, a great-looking magazine. I know that in a very abstract sense, and I just kind of trust, uh, well, most of all, the creative director, but also the publisher, Dennis Page, and the original founder or owner, Stanley Harris, who has tons of magazines in his stable. They were very... They didn't care what the words are. I mean, Dennis never reads the issue. Mr. Harris never read any of the magazines that he put out, but he looked at every photo. So, you know, it's like... I've worked for people who are respectful of look and felt like that's what made a successful magazine and then, hey, editor, just make sure that, you know, we're entertaining people and not having typos or whatever. So there's there's a ton of freedom for me on the editorial side and occasionally probably more pressure on the design side because that's who's being kind of looked at closer by, you know, the bosses. I can just kind of... You know, I have so much freedom about who we write about and what we say about them and what type of stories we do, uh, which I love, um, and I'm very, I'm very grateful for it. So I'd say, yeah, the the duties are content first and foremost, and then secondly, you know, generating revenue um, from from advertisers. Uh, and those are the, that's, those are my main, my main responsibilities.
0: Now today, uh, I mean, this episode's obviously not going to come out today, but today the Air Jordan 30 was released and you guys had someone there covering it through Snapchat. Is that like a social media person that's doing that? Or were you there?
2: Uh, I was, I was not there. Um, I mean, we have, that was our. Uh, associate editor who doubles as our kicks editor Abe Schwadron. he's kind of a point person for all sneaker coverage he also writes for the magazine he also runs the site a couple of days a week I mean we have a full time staff of well editorially um, five and one you know, semi, you know, permalance kind of, and that's it. And then just like lots of freelancers around the country. So everyone does a little of everything. So the guy there, you know, he'll do a print story on the Jordan 30. He'll post a bunch of photos tomorrow. If he hasn't already done tonight, he was snapping from there. He was Instagramming, he was tweeting, um, Half that other places have, which is probably a negative, you know, I'm sure there's places that have a Twitter editor or an Instagram editor, be very nimble, and I think that people working here as a first or second job out of college learn an inordinate amount about uh, modern media because they have to do, you know, a little bit of everything,
0: so... Now, as far as like the des- on the design side, I mean, you you know, you mentioned the creative director. Are there art directors and designers underneath them, or is your creative director single handedly putting together each issue?
2: Um, there's only one. There's no art director. There's no photo editor. It's just the creative director. Um, in the you know heyday, I guess, of the mid aughts. You know and ad you know subscription or circulation was somewhat higher than it is now, and ad revenue was much much higher uh so obviously payroll was higher. there used to be like a junior designer at one point and then there was a i don't think we ever had a three person art staff, but there was a stretch where there was a creative director and an art director, and then there was a stretch with a creative director and a photo editor, but it's been a one person Operation for at least seven years. Um, What they do have the freedom to do, uh, which Melissa kind of implemented a couple of years ago, just in the interest of keeping design fresh. Like they have an art budget for each issue. We don't shoot quite as much as we used to original photography, which is expensive. Um, and it's become easier for some high school kids. Like we can get photos for free sometimes. So she started spending some of her art budget on freelance designers. So the bulk of the magazine is done by by the creative director but they can use some of the art budget to hire freelance designers and they'll send them a headline a subhead um sometimes the words but sometimes just dummy copy if the story is not done yet you know that's good for like custom fonts or just kind of off the wall design and takes the pressure off the creative director to just wild stuff, which Slam is sort of known for. I think it's really hard. You have to either have a pretty formatted uh, look or you've got to use a few different people. Like it's just too hard to come up with seven different wild layouts every month on top of all the other, you know, laying out that you do. And most of the laying out is done in like
0: probably eight business days you know, it's not like they have a ton of time. Right. So, um, now are they, as, as your creative director, are they working on like the digital stuff too, like kind of doing digital graphics or anything on the site or maybe if there's uh, ads?
2: Not, not really. Um, I mean, they're, they definitely do house ads occasionally. Um, even like if if Slam has to produce an ad for a client, these days we'll use a freelance designer for that. We're not going to ask the creative director to do that. You know, we'll tell a client we can make an ad because we certainly can. But we we will probably ask. That just you know tends to be too much to to ask the creative director to do. As far as online. Um, We don't have a lot of freedom to change what the site looks like. You know, yeah, we're part of a much larger company and they're trying to kind of streamline what all their brands look like. The last time we did a redesign, I mean, the, the creative director at the time, Melissa, I mean, she did like some rough wireframes kind of and sketches, but she wasn't trained in like true. So we kind of, we used her input and turned it over to the developer. And I think the guy now would probably be capable of about that, but not much more. Like we don't have the ability to go in and change the look, even if we wanted to, Um
0: yeah, I mean, most most of you guys are just on kind of some some system, right? Like some sort of templated system, and maybe all the magazines in your publisher are.
2: Yeah, we're, we we. I mean, we're on WordPress, and uh, I think even the. I mean, WordPress is what we post stuff on, and even the look, yeah, was on is on some sort of enthusiast network template that has been tweaked a few times, but really, I I we had no say in the.
0: But I, what I'm referring to are mainly just like if there's like a feature on the website that maybe has like a header graphic or something like that. Like you're not doing. Oh anything.
2: yeah that that's not that um that's actually that's actually a really neat thing that the Enthusiast Network does. They have a web producer who's out in California who, you know, we use Parallax or story form. That's not the Slam Creative director. Okay. That's someone else who who it does a wonderful job. I mean, we actually feature her in the new issue because we have done more and more of that. Um, you know, you don't see it on the... Like, to me, our homepage is, like, not a little tired. Like, it looked the same for a while, but we do have some features that, you know, once you click in, look spectacular, and that is... To no credit of anyone
0: on the small editorial or design staff. I see. So in your profile picture on Twitter, you're interviewing Mike, Michael Jordan. Uh, yes. I'm just curious, you know, as someone that grew up as a sports fan, and and I think, honestly, that basketball players, even though the NFL dwarfs every other sport in revenue, basketball players tend to be, in my opinion, the biggest stars globally. In terms of who they absolutely. are, absolutely. So yeah. I'm just curious, like, what's it like working? You know, you you grew up a sports fan. You're writing in sports, and now you're. I mean, you've kind of worked at Slam during this era of like legends. I mean, Kobe, Mike, LeBron, now Steph. Like, what is that like?
2: Um, I mean, it's exciting. You know, they're 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 unquestionably huge stars. Uh, you know, cause there's no uniform, there's no helmet, you know, they're right in your face. There's not hats covering them up. You just see them. And I think people relate to that. Uh, it, it's cool. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm jaded to it. It was very exciting to meet Mike. When I've interacted with LeBron, I still get a big kick out of that. Same with Kobe and Stefan. I mean, I'm thankful to say I've spoken, shaken hands, spoken to all of them and and. Well, Mike only won. Eh, even Mike twice, like multiple for all those guys. Um, but always in the context of he's from Slam. You know what I'm saying? And so yeah. that makes it a lot easier. You know, it's not like you. Bu- I mean, I went to a a Golden Gloves uh, dinner. A couple months ago, because Baseball America, which our company also owns, those guys, those guys invited me, and, like, I'm standing next to Zach Grinke from my beloved Dodgers, and I, like, was not composed at all. Like, I was very awkward um, and more like a fan. When I'm around those, again, it's not like, I mean, not not to sound in a dickish way, but you, you can't really relate to it because you're thinking of yourself as the fan. When I'm there as Slam, like there's already a level of respect and I know that they, whether they are getting something from me because of coverage, whether they have to do it, whether they want to do it because they love it, like they're going to treat me very nicely because not because I'm Ben Osborne, but because I'm
0: representing Slam. Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of these guys you know. probably grew up reading Slam. I mean, you have to think Absolutely. LeBron and I mean,
2: Steph. Le- LeBron, is a, LeBron is a huge fan. Of the magazine, even Michael, like, you know, I think he got it, like, pretty early on, whether he respected what we did, whether Scoop Jackson in Chicago, he liked him personally, but, you know, some of the guys like Ewing, Carl Malone, John Stockton, Reggie Miller, they were very they never got us. Like we were too late. They didn't grow up on us. They were, you know, Charles Barkley. Like we don't have great history with some of those guys I mentioned, but Michael was into slam very early on and that helped a ton. And then from that point on, I mean, yeah, LeBron James had red slam. Kobe Bryant, Grew up with, you know, once he got it, he we were blowing up as he was blowing up. And, right. you know, being on a cover was kind of a badge of honor. So anytime I've spoken to these people, um, yeah, they're like little minor butterflies, but for the most part, it's like so much bigger than me. I have to just remember, I'm Slam. They like Slam. They're going to be nice to me. I can't, like, geek out because I'm representing Slam. I want them to keep liking Slam. Um So, you know, when I sit back, it's absolutely very cool, but it's not like I'm approaching them as a fan, you know, I'm approaching them for my job and they're talking to me for their job. Yeah.
0: And, you know, I think that that's just overall, that's just part of working in sports. I mean, many of us have worked at, at, you know, obviously I'm from Lexington and just interacting with the athletic department here. I mean, there's NBA players pumping out every day <laughs> with Coach Calipari. Yeah, but, you know, there's a there's a, uh, there's a a level of professionalism that you have to have when you're working in sports. And, I mean, I would imagine in entertainment, too, I mean, even if you're doing, like, movie stars and whatever, that type of thing. You're doing a job, you're being professional, and, you know, it's cool, and you might kind of geek out the first time, but overall, you know, my just, the reason why I asked you that question, though, is, is that, like, these guys are mega stars. I mean, it's one thing to see, like, uh, um you know, some big college football player or whatever. But these guys, look like, globally, I mean, and then not only that, but just, like, Mike and Kobe and LeBron are business icons. Like, their future careers are, are about business and sports marketing and investing. True,
2: which is, you know, intimidating and crazy, but also, you know, also in a way is – almost reassuring because again, I'm not bum-rushing these guys. You know, that Michael Jordan interview was set up six months in advance. Like he wasn't doing that just to be nice, you know, like it obviously was, you know, we put his shoe on the cover of kicks magazine. The first time it was a shoe, not a person, you know, that was the condition under which I could get to interview him. So, you know, all that business acumen decided that slam is worth talking to. So, you know it's like even though that's intimidating and crazy it's also reassuring because it's like he wouldn't be doing this for you know he's not doing this just for kicks
0: like he thinks we're worth his time so in in kind of just closing um, is there anything when you look back on your you know roughly 20 years working with slam or just working in, in sports in general is there anything that you look back on is there is there any type of everything's sort of 2020 in hindsight. Like, is there ever any type of like pivotal moment or anything that just, you can kind of point to that say this really completely affected my career
2: personally.
0: Yeah. Or yeah. um... Uh, Oh, just like, yeah. I mean, uh, personally, I mean, not even necessarily professionally with slam or whatever, like what made you become where it was like, now I know that I'm a good writer. Now I know that I'm sort of a master at my craft kind of scenario. I mean, this isn't going to give you the summer you want,
2: but I, I don't feel that different. I mean, I, I still feel, you know, the the staff is small, the business is, you know, up and down. Like, I feel like it's still, I don't feel like I've made it, honestly. Um, and I don't know who, I don't know if, so, you know, maybe David Remnick at The New Yorker, but, you know, this is like a fleeting business in 20 years is a long time, obviously, shoot, it's half of my life, but I haven't like, you know, bought a mansion up in the hills. I certainly haven't gotten rich and slam has always felt like, you know, a couple of really bad issues away from trouble, kind of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a very kind of, you know, seat of the seat of your pants. Like it's a, it's a small it's a smallest operation. Even I mean, there was times it was probably making a lot of money, but you know, for the most part, it's it's been a struggle. We're always struggling for that next cover, that next ad, and as a you know, in my freelance days, same thing. I mean, I'm a good professional writer, but I'm not gifted. I'm not Gary Smith. So I get one assignment and then I was instantly like, what's my next one? You know, I did a book. It was fine. Didn't make me rich. Like got to edit a book about sneakers. Awesome. But it's not like my phone was ringing off the hook. So I honestly, you know, I'm looking at a picture now of my like Washington post ID from September of 1996 and almost 20 years ago. And I don't think I have that different of an approach like it's a bit of like an underdog feel and you know this isn't going to be you're not going to be able to write about sports forever unless you really do a good job you're not going to be let it slam forever unless you do a good job and make it good and get the ads that you guys need so i don't know i mean i i worked with a lot of great people and just getting the chance to come work here and tony Dravino giving me that opportunity i guess was a big moment you know there's been little breaks uh professionally you can't get anywhere without someone taking a chance on you but i don't there was never a moment where i said i made it because i don't feel that yet so
0: well that's that's uh you know that might that might actually be a good thing, right, because like you know at some point, if you're like, "I've made it, I mean, I think when people are doing things that are creative, there's a you know imposter syndrome is always something that's always in the back of our heads, like, are we good enough? Have we made it? What do our peers think? It's tough,
2: yeah it is it's kind of it's kind of crazy but you yeah, you're always like you know, not looking over your shoulder. Like there's not jealousy or anything like that, but it's just like, it's a chat. You got to, you know, it's, it's competition. Like you're, you're fighting against, um, you know, you're fighting for people's eyeballs. You're fighting for people's dollars. You're fighting for people's respect. Um, and that doesn't, you know, I, I don't know who doesn't worry about that in this in this industry, you
0: know? Yeah. I mean that's just if you if you are at all fiscally minded in terms of just like it's a business, you have to.
2: Yeah. And and especially when you want to do it without, you know, quote unquote, selling out, like you want it to be a business, but you still want it to be, you want to be the coolest, the most successful, the best looking, like, you know, there's a lot of different, the scrappiest, the most authentic, you know, we're trying to check off a lot of boxes with, with very few people. So there's very, very little, relaxation i would would say for better or worse you know
0: so what about like your you know you were involved in that documentary with sweet pea and then your book these are sort of just like side projects what i would consider side projects do you do those because you kind of need another creative outlet
2: um yes i mean I, i i love having something else to put my attention to and You know, I think that that's gotten harder as the, you know, the social media and then the advertising demands. I mean, this is my full-time job. I I give it a a ton, but yes, working on a movie um, was amazing. Uh, you know, I still kind of am in the sense that it doesn't have distribution yet and you know it's ultimately not my problem but I want it to for the guy that made it, Benjamin May. He deserves it to have lots of success. But I helped get him Lloyd Daniels. I just worked with him throughout the process. It finally came out um you know a month or two ago in New York and it was awesome and I got the screening and that was great. Um the slam kicks book was done, you know, with the slam name on it, so it was fully endorsed by these guys. Um, but that was still a lot of work, having nothing to do with the magazine, and they didn't really care, to be honest. If we did it, I pushed for it. I did something for Complex a couple of years ago about the first white rapper. I did a story for the Wall Street Journal a year and a half ago about a baseball store in Greenwich Village. Um, you know, I have ideas out to different places when I have time, which is less and less. But And I encourage my staff to do the same, and I realize they're squeezed for time too, but, you know, we all have interests beyond just basketball and just sneakers or just delivering them a, a certain way. So, um, yeah, those were little side projects, and if it was you know, up to me, I would do a few, a few more of them, but that's another example. Like, how could I think I've made it when, you know, any side work I get pretty much I'm going after I'm pursuing. It's not like, whatever. There's a lot of talented people out there, a lot of smart people, a lot of great writers, a lot of great editors. So, you know, you got to work for for all that stuff and same with me. If I if there's a side project, odds are I worked hard to make it happen and I don't always have the time to to do that. Um, so I mean I'm a father also and that's extremely important to me too. So you know, there's only there's only so many hours in the day, but I am definitely very proud of the non SLAM or semi SLAM things I've done and I hope to do, you know, a lot a lot more of them. Via
0: slam or just by myself. Cool. Well, yeah, I uh, you're talking about basketball sneakers that changed the game, right? I have that that book. That's right in front of me. But yeah, um, yeah. Yes. Uh, well, man, I, I appreciate your time, and uh, it was it was great as a as a fan, you know, as a reader to just hear the backstory and kind of hear. Even just like surprising to me, like knowing that it kind of operates as like almost like a smaller business, like smaller people involved. Obviously you have publishers and things like that, but just like the staff that puts this thing together, I think it just makes me and I think it makes most people that will hear this respect the work that much more because there's just, you guys are sort of almost bootstrapping in a sense.
2: Yes. Thank you. That's what I was pulling. Uh, I was, I was
0: searching for that term before. Yeah. Well, listen, why don't you, uh, why don't you give us, um, give your Twitter a shout out slams Twitter. Where can people support your work and follow you online?
2: cool um i'm at d 17 uh on twitter and instagram slam is slam online on twitter and instagram welcome the follows um our website is SlamOnline.com. uh these days is updated pretty close to 24 7 lots of highlights uh magazine com their online only features um You know, we we welcome the traffic. You can subscribe to the magazine via the site. I think that it's a great, if you love basketball or you know a kid that's into basketball, I I think it's a good read. It's a great entree to literacy, I think, for young readers. Um, It's still fun. There's trash talk. There's noise. So yeah, check it out. Give us a follow. Give us a subscribe. um, And please know that it's all uh, appreciated. We read we read your emails. We read your tweets. And uh, you know, really, just about every buyer matters. It's it's a it's a small it's a small show, and you know, we appreciate the
0: support. Very cool. And I want to add too for listeners that uh, even just if you're not into basketball, just for design inspiration. I mean, uh, the magazine looks great. The features look great, and uh, looking forward to seeing what this new issue looks like with the new creative director. So. Yeah,
2: I really hope you know. Now that I know your your history of design <laughs> I, I really, I really, really, I really hope you like it.
0: Yeah. Well, I won't. I won't. I won't write a letter in this time. That was that was young. Right. That was young and arrogant. <laughs> I'm 32 <laughs> now, so it's uh, we're we're well beyond that. I've got two kids of my own, so I'll I put my energies elsewhere. <laughs> Yeah, I I hear that. (laughs) All right, man. Well, I appreciate your time. Adam, thank you so much, man. This, This was awesome. Thanks again, Ben. My next guest is going to be Jeremy Darlow. Jeremy is the director of brand marketing for Adidas football and baseball. He has been at Adidas for around eight years working in digital marketing before moving to football and baseball. Jeremy is also the author of the popular college sports business book, Brands Win Championships, which is an educational resource for college athletic programs on how to properly market and promote their athletic brands. Jeremy was actually uh, scheduled to come on the show back in, before football season, fall 2015, but we ended up getting our schedules crossed. Um, I ended up telling him two different dates, Completely my mistake. So he's going to be finally joining us, and I'm very grateful. Big thanks again to Ben Osborne for taking some time to come aboard the podcast. Again, as he mentioned, head over to slamonline.com to check out some of the content they have going on over there. And you can follow him on Twitter at B Osborne17. That's Osborne with an E, B O S B O R N E 17. Be sure to head over to makersofsport.com slash episodes to hear more from all of these folks that I interview. Uh, all the previous guests are there. And you can also hear the halftime episodes, which are on the off weeks of interviews where I discuss entrepreneurship, freelance, and more in the sports industry. As always, please be sure to sign up for Weekend Reads, which is a weekly newsletter where I write exclusive content only for the subscribers. And I also share the things that I'm reading or links that I find interesting or things that inspire me. And in addition, I uh, give notifications of who's upcoming guests, who signs on to come aboard the podcast. I, I notify people ahead of time. And then also you get the show notes delivered right to your inbox. These newsletters are... Kind of morphing into another halftime. Uh, they're very in-depth articles, and I try to just give back and share as much as possible. So, if you want to get those, definitely go support the show by signing up at makersofsport.com/email. Lastly, please take one to two minutes and head over to makersofsport.com/itunes and hit the five star and write about your experience with the show. If you've gotten value for myself or any of the guests on the show, then please share the podcast and rate the content so that others can discover that value for themselves as well. As always, I'll accept likes, ratings, or reviews in Stitcher SoundCloud or whichever application you happen to be listening to this in. I do want to give a special thank you to all of you non-U.S. listeners that have left reviews. I just discovered recently that iTunes... Only shows me the reviews that are written in the United States. So I have to basically sign out and go to different countries' stores to check those. But I found an app that lets me see every review written everywhere. So many thanks to everyone that has taken the time to write a review. The rest of you, please, please go do that. It definitely helps to inspire me to keep going, knowing that you are getting some value from the show. I'm at T. Adam Martin on Twitter and Dribbble. The show is at Makers of Sport. Until next time, have a good week.